The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get over to Spotify. Here's a story. It's just, I don't know if it's just another tech story, another tech company laying off people. But, I mean, the stock, like the other tech names, when they make these announcements, it's up 2.3%. Let's bring in uh, Geetha Raghunathan. She covers all things media, digital media, all that stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Geetha, talk to us about Spotify. What's going on there with the company? Yes, it looks very much, Paul, like, uh, you know, this company also fell into the same trap as other tech companies. They kind of overestimated demand just based on pandemic trends. And they, I guess they hired too many people. They basically doubled their headcount from, you know, about 4,500 people to almost close to about 10,000 just over a span of two years. Uh, and now what are they faced with? They're faced with a subscriber slowdown. They're faced with advertising headwinds. Uh, so there's a pullback across the business. Um, and so they have to react. Uh, and this is exactly what they're doing. There's about a 6% cut in their workforce that they announced this morning. So, but, you know, it's Spotify. When I think about the revenues drivers that you just highlighted, advertising and subscriber growth, but didn't Apple Music just, you know, raise their prices? Doesn't that give Spotify some room to maybe raise some prices? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, you know, as we think about pricing power in the music streaming business, yes, uh, exactly. Uh, you know, Spotify has held its price constant for, you know, the longest period of time. It's at about $10. Apple just, just raised it to about $11 a month. So the general expectation is, yes, uh, they will be able to raise prices or they potentially will do it sometime in the first quarter. But again, where does that get you? Okay, you have about 200 million subscribers. Uh, so that gives you an additional $200 million of, of revenue uh, annually. Again, not enough to move the needle. I, you know, there's an opinion piece by Sarah Green Carmichael. I don't know if you've seen it, but she says layoffs often leave companies worse off. And she goes through the data, um, not just in terms of profitability, but just in terms of morale, morale. A lot of times it seems to break companies. You know, even those who are left are scurrying to look for other jobs. They hate management now. Um, you know, they're not on board with the mission. Are these companies, not just Spotify, but across, you know, the board, especially after they had such a difficult time hiring people last year, are they shooting themselves in the foot, themselves in the foot, trying to, um, you know, sail so close to the wind? I don't think so. I think, and especially if you read kind of, uh, you know, Spotify, uh, the CEO, Daniel Eek's letter, he said he might have been overambitious. And I think this is one of the things that we're seeing across in all of their investments, actually, with Spotify. So if you just look at Spotify, just very basically at their business model, 
for every one uh, dollar that, of revenue that they generate, they, they pay out about 70 to 75 cents to the record labels. So they really have no control over their content costs, which is what has kind of prompted this whole move for them to kind of really push into podcasts. This has been this really big uh, source of investments for them. Uh, they've invested over a billion dollars, right, into the podcast market. They signed on the Obamas. They signed on Prince Harry. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan was. I mean, that's the million. only differentiator. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. get Apple Music and you're good to go. Yeah, exactly. So, the, you know, you have to own content. This is exactly what Netflix did, right? You have to have your own shows because content is the differentiator. The only thing is they've just spent too much for podcasts. They've already spent about one to one and a half billion dollars. It's only generated about 200 million so far in revenue. So there's just, you know, we've come to a point when the industry really doesn't care about subscriber growth. And Spotify, they already have a 35% share of the music streaming market. There is a lot of runway for them to go grow in terms of subscribers, but nobody cares about subscribers anymore. They care about profits, and there's just no sustainable, uh, or there's just the model just doesn't show us that this company can get to significant profitability anytime soon. So is, is you own the stock just on the come here that you just think it's it's a growth market it is a growth market and and you know if you just kind of look at music streaming i think it's a defensive business we be we have traditionally we've just not seen um, as much churn in the music streaming business as compared to let's say video streaming right uh, because you know typically you 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 subscribe to multiple video streaming services whereas in, in the audio business it's just it's either a spotify or an apple or an amazon right. um so you know there's this uh, there's much less chance for streaming, uh, much less chance for churn, sorry. Right. But, um, right. you know, these investments uh, have They're just big. really kind of depressed the, the stock. All right, Geetha, great stuff. As always, Geetha Ranganathan, she's a U.S. media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, she covers it all. She is the expert. We love getting a few minutes of her time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We're three weeks in to a new year. So far, so good. We got stocks up uh, 3.5%. We got bonds up a couple, 2 3%. A little bit better than last year. How about the rest of the year? Hans Olsen. We're going to ask him that question. He's the CIO, fiduciary trust company. They got a gajillion dollars of assets under management. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate him taking the choo-choo down from Connecticut. Hans, when coming into this year, what were you telling your clients after what was really a disastrous year for the 60-40 portfolio out there? Yeah, yeah. A lot of the trends that we saw in force last year we thought would bleed into this year. You know, sort of the reset of the price of money, uh, concerns about, you know, where interest rates would uh, top out, and would we see a recession or not? So what we what we thought, right, this, this the rally that we've seen over the last three weeks or so sort of fits uh, that of a of a, a counter trend rally, you know, bear market rally uh, amidst a, a trend that I'm not sure that we've we've necessarily seen the bottom yet. Uh, could retest the bottom, but um, certainly we're likely to see some more downside volatility here. So we're just about to get into the thick of it in terms of earnings season, yeah, right? We get yeah. the 
big industrial companies reporting, um, as well as you know Microsoft and Tesla, so the weirdos as well. Um, what do you expect in terms of the earnings? You know, we thought there would be an earnings slowdown. Are, is it going to materialize? We've, have we lowered the bar enough? I think we will see an earnings slowdown, right? So if you look back even, um, I don't know, eight weeks or so for the fourth quarter, uh, the expectations that the earnings would be up something like three or four percent now, the expectations will come in close to down somewhere four or five percent. So I, I think we're going to exit a, a very awful year in a difficult way, right? Um, and the question is, does that set the stage for more in 2023? I think in the early part, yes, it does. Um, you know, the expectations for this year are, are um, I think, modest and growing more modest by the day. The question really is what happens to margins, right? So, you know, the, the expectation this year is that um, our revenues will be up, what, 3%? but uh, two or 3% and uh, earnings will be up four, five. So that says that the margins have to expand. At this point in the cycle, against this inflation back black backdrop, you would expect to see margins contract rather than expand. So you know, that's got to get resolved. We will talk about earnings and we'll talk about it a lot over the next few weeks, but at the end of the day, it still feels like the Fed is kind of the narrative here that people need to pay attention to. I mean, Matt's making the argument, we need to see a the Fed remain firm here, 50 basis points here. Yeah. That's just one get, man's opinion. That's just one man's opinion, uh, but the man has a beard, um, so we tend to pay attention. Um, and a good beard. And a good beard. Well, thank you. Thank but you. What, are, what are the good folks at Fiduciary Trust, those are the people I really pay attention to. What, what are you guys thinking about this Federal Reserve, and maybe what's a good policy for them to pursue? Yeah, I, I think you have to squeeze the life out of inflation. And that means that you, you keep um, rates high enough until there's no question that it's gone. And there's still a question. I mean, I think Larry Summers has been right on the mark with this, right? He says it's going to be hard. It's going to take some time. Uh, if you look at the PCE numbers, which we'll see later this week, um, my guess is, is that they're going to come in, what, that four and a half, five, which is still a multiple, uh, multiple or so greater than uh, where the Fed wants it. So the job is not done yet. And, I, you know, the, really the question will be, what is the relationship between the price of money and the price of stuff? And that's the question that the Fed hasn't asked. And, and I think it was said in the earlier segment, you know, you have to, um, no one wants to go down as the Fed chairman that fails. No one wants to be the 20th century G. William Miller. Yes. Or Arthur, Arthur Burns, Burns. Right? Yeah. Who wants that, uh, you know, sort of next to their name? Um, yeah, totally agree. And I guess we'll see. I've noticed financial conditions keep getting looser and looser. Yeah. Um, with three and a half percent unemployment, uh, it, it seems like they have a long way to go, although we do see insurance, inflation coming down. I want to ask about hedge funds, and I guess only your wealthiest clients get access to the Citadels, the Bridgewaters, the DE Shaws, but if you get access to the biggest hedge funds, the right. biggest multi-strategy hedge funds, you still knocked the ball out of the park last year. It doesn't matter what happens to earnings. It doesn't matter if we're in a recession. It doesn't matter if stocks go down. Right. What do you think about um, the shift that we're seeing from you know long-only hedge funds you know, you could be a single, pick a single name, a superstar, and ride it with them to now multi-strategy, multi-manager hedge funds that are doing well. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic of hedge funds, I, and I think you're right. You know, if, you, if you that top one percent, um, that's where to be, and you're going to pay for it too, right? Right. The, the top the, twenty made twenty-two billion dollars last year, but the 
the industry many, lost two hundred and eight billion. There you total. go. Yeah. There you go. And I and I just think you can replace a lot of that that market exposure with with other vehicles at a fraction of the cost. Um, again, there are always exceptions, um, and the Citadels and the like will, will always stand out, and the Elliots will always stand out that way. But um, they are the exceptions. The rule is much more disappointing. You know, I noticed uh, last year international markets. We talked to our international Bloomberg intelligence people, like Tim Craighead over in London, and pointing out throughout the year how you know international markets have outperformed the U.S. Yeah. How do you think about that in 2023? Yeah, I think that's probably going to be the sleeper story, right? The sleeper market of 2023, which is um, we expected the worst for Europe. The, in, in many respects, it did not happen, right? Didn't have a cold winter. They didn't run out of energy. The, the pipeline infrastructure didn't collapse. Um, you know, inflation seems to be abating there. Uh, and, uh, you know, those, those markets have performed exceptionally well. If you're an American investor and we're right about the dollar that we've essentially seen peak dollar in this, in this cycle, then international markets um, of all flavors are, are going to look pretty interesting this year. So I think that's going to be the sleeper story. I mean, when your most exciting tech company is SAP, yeah, that's definitely a sleeper story. <laughs> that is right, but that maybe is the good thing. You know, they. All I mean, they're long, they're long, they're long, they're like Siemens and big manufacturing and yeah. that kind of stuff. That's the I mean, look at, energy. Look at the rotation that you've seen in both the S and P five hundred and um, the the MSCI Acqui. So the some of the darling stocks fell out like. Teslas, the Metas, the, the Nvidias, right? What come? What replaces it? Exxon, uh, 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 Procter and Gamble, um, and uh, Berkshire Hathaway were, were just a few. So I mean, it's, it's there's an interesting rotation that's going on in the markets right now that will likely continue well into this year. How much? attention do we have to pay to Washington, D.C.? I'm so jaded by this whole debt ceiling thing because, you know, I remember back when um, Adam Johnson was here at Bloomberg. Yep. He did a special when the U.S. got downgraded. I remember that. And everybody poured into treasuries. <laughs> right. So it wasn't the horrible fate that we expected. Now they're doing it again. And I think everyone believes they'll eventually find a solution. It's totally political. But... It could cause some ripples in financial markets, right? Yeah, it could. It could. I mean, you don't, when you start playing around with the full faith and credit, um, you know, that's hostage that you don't want to take. Um, because the, the, the downside. Well, some people want to take that hostage. <laughs> yeah. Gladly so. Yeah. Not a good outcome. But the interesting thing last time that, that we went through this, we actually ended up in a really good place, right? So we saw, we saw the deficit come down after that. What the credit rating agencies didn't like was the process. And this process isn't going to get any better this time, right? Um, if anything, it'll be worse. I think the thing that we should be looking for is a resolution through the most unusual ways, which would be a discharge petition, which is where basically because of the what happened a couple of weeks ago in the House and because of these factions that exist in the, in the majority party, you could see basically a, a coalition of the willing cut a deal, go right around the, par, uh, the party leadership and take it to the floor for a vote. And get it done. You know, Hans, one of the things I've been, I've been asking is just kind of what's who are going to be the leaders of this market to the extent we do have a sustained move upward here. I mean, over the last 12, 15 years, it's been technology. Right. But it just feels like that might not be the case here. How do you think about market leadership going forward? Yeah, which is this gets back to the the, the whole idea of, of this rotation going on within the market, a new leadership uh, emerging, and I think it's more of the average stock versus the favored stock, right? If you and if you proxy that for the S and P equal weight versus the market cap weight, that equal weighted 
version of the index has done very well over the last couple of years. Last year, it, it, it outperformed the market cap weighted by about four or 500 basis points. Mm. Pretty noteworthy. And it's doing the same thing this year. If, if the narrative is correct around um, China reopening, we don't go into recession, if Europe escapes recession, which is the, the story this morning, uh, and we, we, we escape it or at least have a mild one, then you're going to want more of the cyclical names, right? Energy, I think, will be uh, one of the standouts. Industrials will be another one. Materials, um, and that's very different from yep. the communication services, the techs of the past four or five years. Yeah, I mean, energy, I'm just looking at uh, ExxonMobil, up 64% on a trailing 12-month basis. So that was certainly a leader. The question is, for a lot of folks like me, did I miss that trade? So, but, uh, you know, we've got WTI crude oil up again here at $82 a barrel. Hans Olson, Hans Olson, CIO of Fiduciary Trust Company. Uh, he's based in Boston, uh, but he's in here in New York for some unknown reason, nefarious reason, I'm sure. But he There's joins a lot us of here. reasons to come to New York. I know. There's a lot of reasons, a lot of ways to get in trouble here. So that's what I'm just calling out. Anyway, he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Stay Broker safe, Studio. Hans. We appreciate it. Our C-suite conversation for the day. We're talking information technology, grid dynamics. GDYN is a ticker to put in here, your Bloomberg terminal. We're joined today by Leonard Lipschitz. He's the CEO of Grid Dynamics. Uh, Leonard, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, first of all, just give us the 30,000-foot overview of what Grid Dynamics is. How do you fit into that tech stack? Uh, thank you for having me. Um, Grid Dynamics is a uh, global digital engineering company. Uh, we generally consult and coordinate with the uh, largest, most respected global brands. And we solve, optimize, and uh, deliver the digital solutions to our clients. Uh, we drive the business agility, we create innovation entered solutions, and we are known in uh, digital commerce, artificial intelligence, data and cloud um, rollouts to help our clients exp expand and prosper. So that's pretty much what Green and Epic is. So one of the things we, we've noticed just from some of the big tech companies over the last couple of quarters is that the economic headwinds, which are, are, are global in nature, they are in fact hitting the technology growth story, and we're seeing tech stocks uh, reflect that in the, the underperformance we saw last year. How is it impacting your business, your clients? Well, um, it, it is always, um, you know, the headlines about something which happened in the world. Um, when it comes to uh, our specialization in um, IT uh, consulting specifically uh, with addressing the client needs, we're Broadly um, diversified. So yes, uh, when we see some pressures coming in the tech world, um, we find um, some continuous growth in a, a manufacturing space. There are, um, you know, life signs. There are broader way of addressing the, um, you know, the, the needs in the digital transformation. So um, we see kind of mixed signals. Um, some of them um, are extremely, you know, prospering and growing. Uh, some of them more moderate and constrained. Before we go any further into what's going on at, at Grid and the, and the tech world in general, I got to ask what you did as um, – global lighting business head at, at Ford Motor Company. What does that, what does that mean? You, you, you design and implement the headlight strategies, or how does that work? Uh, you're going back a couple of decades ago. Um, well, um, I was very fortunate to start my uh, career after the um, advanced degrees in the various universities at Ford Motor Company, and uh, 
right off the bat, we were facing the again the revolution in lighting with uh, modern technology like uh, you know HID uh, lamps and uh, um, you know LED technologies, and I just happened to be in the forefront. So we were working with Ford, and then later when Ford spun off this year as a division, I was again fortunate to spare had a lot of innovations in a global, um, very, very uh, re- renowned brand to change their entire behavior when it comes to front lighting. All right. All right. No, that's fascinating. Let's get back then to tech now. I'm wondering how much of a concern rising rates are for you and for the industry. Um, and we've heard from a number of players on the West Coast that um, the software spend, uh, and I guess in general, IT spending could be challenged this year um how do you how do you see that at, at grid dynamics well um let's let just uh let me answer the second question first and i'll come back to the interest rates so yes um in, in the in the software spend um you, you see some pressure so is with the industrial uh, budget um it's not the first um downturn we face in a company we've been around for 17 years Typically, what makes a difference is how critical the applications are for the client. Again, uh, when we come to the um, health of the company, it's about the pricing, personalization, supply chain, logistics, um, you know, competitive innovation. So typically, um, when you are in the midst of the very critical path for the uh, competitive advantage, and uh, the clients are you know, relying on you. There is a little bit of a, another behavior during the, um, you know, some of the constraints with the client. They rely uh, on their um, partners, uh, IT supply partners like Redynamics, um, just to leverage some of the risks in terms of their own budgets. So, uh, in general, I feel very bullish for the year. Of course, um, you know, everybody kind of watches where the rates are, but this is more about the sentiment than the true behavior in them. I mean, we'll go to the earnings call, um, in, you know, very soon in a month, and then we'll hear more details about our performance. But I see that um, we have the, um, I would say, for 2023, from the roadmap perspective, a pretty comfortable uh, expectation going toward the second half of the year. As far as the interest rates, uh, everybody is watching them because, again, um, many industries depend on our loans. Um, and particularly in the United States, and again, um, our clients, majority of them uh, are huge, large uh, brands, um, enterprises, and techs in the U.S. So, yes, as we see a little bit of the tampering of the forecasting um, in terms of the uh, future of the interest rates, uh, some of the clients become a little bit uh, more open to discuss long-term plans. Um, you know, I don't have the the magic wand to see, or you know the the crystal ball to yep. forecast exact numbers, but we we, we definitely have a little bit better um, sentiment today than it could have been like two three months ago. So, Leonard, your your company's based out there in Silicon Valley, San Ramon, California. What are you and maybe not you guys, but what are your neighbors doing in terms of? firing people, laying off people. We've seen, you know, a whole bunch of tech companies announce layoffs, you know, including today, uh, most recently Spotify. What's going on out there with you guys? Well, we, we are headquartered in uh, in the Bay Area, but we also have a very strong presence in uh, Texas, you know, uh, 
Atlanta, Georgia, New York, Jersey, you know, South, uh, East, as well as Northwest. So we're quite diversified around the U.S. from the client base, as well as Europe. So, uh, yes, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, Silicon Valley is notorious for those ramp up and ramp downs. Um, I would say if you read your own, uh, you know, publication, which I'm a big fan of, Bloomberg been a subscriber for a while, uh, you can tell that uh, in the last two years, some of those big tech, you know, expressed a very, very strong growth. And uh, during the growth, they added a lot of headcount. So it's a little bit of opportunity to, um, somebody mentioned, clean the addicts. Um, I hope that people are not offended by that term because, of course, it's a tragedy people lose their job. But if you compare the headcount of the big tech today versus two or three years ago, it's still very, very strong. For us, frankly, it's an opportunity to hire really good people out of the, out of the industry. And uh, we, we were constrained with, um, you know, crazy right. uh, spendings. But we are very bullish that, uh, you know, there's a place of great dynamics for quality people as we continue to expand. All right. Great stuff. Leonard Lifshitz, CEO of Grid Dynamics. The ticker is GDYN. Uh, for your Bloomberg terminal, uh, got about a $920 million market cap. They're in the information technology consulting business, uh, you know, and their business, as uh, Mr. Lipschitz stated, still pretty strong. But again, as we've heard from a lot of tech companies mm. over the past couple of quarters, you know, the economic headwinds that are affecting so many other industries, uh, they are also affecting uh, information technology and just the tech spend in general. So we'll pay attention to some of those tech companies uh, coming up in this earnings season to get an outlook for 2023. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It is a good day in the markets, not so much if you're, uh, you know, some of these tech companies just, you know, last year was such a tough run for them in a rising interest rate environment. We got some news out today on another big tech named Salesforce.com. It's got an activist investor in there. What does that mean for the company? What does that mean for management? Anurag Rana, senior tech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us on the phone. What does Elliot want? What do you think when they, if they get a voice at the board or if they get a, a Zoom call with the board, what do you think they're going to ask? So I think they're going to ask them to be a little more responsible with the way they spend their money, uh, frankly. And, uh, you know, the number one thing for us is Salesforce spends more on sales and marketing than any company their size. You know, on a gap basis, 45% of their revenue goes to sales and marketing compared to, let's say, you know, 20% for Oracle or 25% for SAP or about 11% for Microsoft. What, 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 so what accounts are, for that difference, do you think? Are they, do they just buy more expensive dinners? Yeah, I think, see, what happens is in the cloud-based software world and everything is growth was everything, you know, they would just push a lot more money on sales and marketing and some get some, you know, growth out of it. They do a lot of conferences. They are all over the world. But frankly speaking, that is absolutely true when you are a startup, a brand new company. But Salesforce has been around for 24 years now, so they really don't need to do that anymore. Um, so I think that's going to be a big uh, area of focus in our view. In terms of the, the rest of the layoffs, um, do you see this as a concern? I mean, if they're starting to cut people, it's going to be hard to turn that around if they need to. I mean, Salesforce, I think, yeah. is a special case because 
as we pointed out, they've hired 31,000 people in two years. They, you know, boosted their headcount by like 60%. But the other uh, big tech companies are in this in the same boat. So the way you want to think about it is there is a very large correlation between revenue growth and, and employee growth. Let's say, you know, for the sake of argument, it's one is to one or slightly less than one is to one. Now, if these, if, if your thesis is right, or if you believe tech spending will come back, you know, next year or the year after, they have no choice but to hire people because they, they are needed not just in sales and marketing, but software developers to come up with new products or to expand services. So I'm, I'm not concerned about the headcount uh, you know, addition. The question is where the allocation goes. Are you going to put that money in R&D or are you going to put that money in you know, sales and marketing? And I think that's really going to be a big difference for uh, Salesforce. I think they'll have to be a little more responsible with the way they spend money. And then also about their uh, you know, acquisitions. They have spent so much money last few years in acquisitions, I think the, the the Elliot can ask them to you know focus more on organic growth, cost control, and then buybacks. So, all right. So let's stay with just kind of the the Silicon Valley layoff story, if you will. I mean, are these the you know the high in demand engineer software folks? Or, I can't imagine because all I've heard for the last twenty years coming out of Silicon Valley, and, and that includes, you know, some of the, 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 you know, the Googles of the world and the Facebooks, they just can't get enough of that talent. Are they letting that talent go? I think it is a mix of both. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I've never looked at the breakdown of, you know, who got laid off in this particular, uh, uh, you know, cycle, but I think it'll be a, a lot of people in, you know, um, sales and marketing, a lot of people in HR and other support functions, as well as some developers also. I'm, I'm sure that's not the case. But having said that, I've said this repeatedly, that the unemployment rate for a lot of these categories, whether it's software developers, database administrators, is so low. I mean, it's, it's you know, 2% or sometimes even below that. Um, you know, they will have no problem finding a job anywhere uh, and the reason for that is every industry, it doesn't have to be uh, tech, you know, energy, uh, transportation, uh, you know, all of these people are hiring technology people to digitize their businesses. By the way, I wanted to ask you about ChatGPT, right? Microsoft uh, is investing in this AI company, well, an open AI, which runs ChatGPT. I've been trying to get on it all morning, but it's just too crowded. Everybody wants to use it. It's an artificial intelligence I guess, tool. to write your term paper. I was going to use it to build an ETF. Me and okay. Katie Greifeld were going to do that. My brother wants to use it to write a song. You know, um, investors are using it or, or, or uh, bankers are using it to pitch investors. Um, is this going to be incredibly successful or is it a, just a fad right now that's going to burn out? See, AI in general is going to be generally successful because it's not going to be only a product like this where, you know, it's it's a chat, uh, uh, you know, chat GPT like a product. But almost everything that we do, any software application that we use, and it could be Spotify as well, as you were discussing, um, or Microsoft Word or, uh, or anything else, um, it, it has to get more sophisticated. It has to have the ability of uh, to, to understand things and give you better results. So AI infusion across all software products is one of the biggest trends that we will see over the next few years. And then one of the key things about uh, you know, this investment is, you know, the back end for this is Microsoft's cloud platform. So the more people use, you know, it's good yep. for the usage or the, the consumption of those cloud services. And I think that is going to be a big uh, story for the next few years. 
All right, good stuff as always. Anurag Rana, he's a tech analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about all things tech, tech uh, labor force layoffs, uh, and chat GPT. That is the new thing, right? I mean, that's kind of like the last few weeks. It's I'm excited to get boom. on it. I'm in line. I'm waiting. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the venture biz, uh, venture debt, investing in startups. Uh, how's that marketplace these days in a rising interest rate environment. We're going to check in with Kyle Brown. He's the CIO and president of Trinity Capital, NASDAQ symbol T-R-I-N. Mr. Brown graduated from Arizona State, whose bas men's basketball team is coached by the greatest college point guard of all time. Who's that? Bobby Hurley from oh. Jersey City, New Jersey, St. Anthony's, and Duke. Uh, Kyle, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about, just to start off, what is Trinity Capital? Where do you guys play in the capital markets? Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Trinity Capital, we are a, uh, a provider of capital to growth stage companies. Uh, venture debt is one product we provide, uh, but we really focus on companies growing at a 25 to 100 percent annual growth rate who have raised significant equity dollars, 50 plus million dollars of equity. They've proven out their technology. Uh, they've really identified a market. They've got a uh, they've got a moat around that technology and they're really scaling. And we come in to provide capital to help them grow. And we really focus on execution type risk. Uh, and so we're helping these companies go from, you know, 20 to 40 million of, of, of run rate as they reach either profitability or head towards an IPO or M&A type transaction. So we're an extension of runway and a complement to the equity that they've raised. So but what's the market like for those companies? Um, is it harder and harder for them to get access? So it's a really interesting market right now. Um, you've got a ton of equity out there, right? Maybe even a record amount of venture capital and private equity that's looking at to be placed. And then you have the idea that they want uh, revaluations, right? There's been very lucrative valuations for founders for the last, you know, five years. And so there's a lot of capital, but they are looking for deals. And so you have a variety of situations. One is a company that really needs equity um, and maybe is not growing at the pace they were before. And it's going to be difficult for that company to, to get that equity. And then you have companies that continue to do well in the face of adversity. But in spite of that, they're going to see their company revalued. And so it's really, you know, it's, it's happening slowly. I don't know that it's quite happened yet, but, you know, these, these tech companies are getting revalued similar to what's happened in the public markets. And talk to us about, I mean, you know, the startup companies, it was for the longest time, it was just top line growth, top line growth, maybe even just subscriber growth. Don't worry about profits. But that's really seemed to change. Talk to us about that and how, how you factor that into your analysis. Sure. I mean, so our underwriting's always factored on, you know, does this company have the ability to turn the corner? Do they have levers in place to control burn? And does the burn make sense? You know, are they spending to grow because the unit economics makes sense. And I think, you know, what's interesting is our portfolio, we've got 90 plus portfolio companies today. Our portfolio started making changes 12 to 18 months ago, mm. kind of in advance of what you're seeing in the public markets today. So many of these companies made the hard decision a year ago, uh, knowing that uh, they were in the middle of tough times. Uh, their, their investors, of course, have seen this before. And so a lot of those changes have already been made. And so a lot of these companies are really kind of weathering the storm they're raising the amount of capital they need to get two, you know, plus years down down the road, uh, so that they can get to better days and, and raise equity at uh, better valuations. So it's it's uh, I think the change most most changes have been made. They continue to be made, but I think uh, it just happens sooner than what you're seeing in the public markets. Have you uh, seen an increased demand from investors um, for access to your uh, to your firm? Because it does seem like. You know, private credit has been a huge um, 
trend over the last yeah. six, say six months to a year? Yeah, we we certainly have. Um, you know, there's the idea is that there is if you do if you invest right during this time, with valuations in some cases kind of being halved, there could be an opportunity for some outsized warrant returns. And you know, in our world, the majority of our returns, and if you look at, a, at the returns we've been generating for a long time, it's all it's mostly current pay. It's 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 rate, it's fee. We are a true lender, secured lender, but we also get warrants. There's some additional upside. And in our world, that that tends to kind of cover your losses and to provide investors with some additional upside. If valuations are being halved and we are getting warrants at those newer valuations, it provides some potential for some, some additional upside down the road. And so I think investors see that, certainly. And um, I think we see it as well. What, what's the concern about... Um... Uh, non-performing loans. I have a listener who writes in to ask, you know, assuming you have none right now, um, if if we get a recession, what do you expect that uh, that number to grow to, that 0% to grow to? So, I mean, losses are a part of our, our world. You know, we we have, you know, you can look at our warrant gains recently. We, we have significant kind of equity realized gains that cover some of our losses. It's just part of our model. So we expect there to be losses. We expect there to be um, some non accruals. It's just part of how our world works. But can you quantify, Although, can you quantify that? I mean, what we, I know Matthew Mish earlier was saying he thought um, we'd see a nine percent default rate. Now that was, I think, an outlier. But what 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 do you expect this year? We've seen a historic loss rate. We've been doing this since you know going back to the the uh, real estate crash in two thousand eight. We've seen a, a kind of annual two percent historic kind of loss rate. Um, that really hasn't changed much. Um, you know, the companies that we have in our portfolio and that we're seeing in our space, it's not a, it's not really a matter of are they going to go away or not? Um, these companies have real technology. There's real value, real IP. And, and in our world, we do a lot of equipment financing. There's really equipment value there that's that's worth something in a, in a downturn scenario. It's really more about at what value are they going to raise capital at and, and what that and that impacts equity investors and shareholders more than it invests a secured lender who's sitting at a very low loan to value. I think we our average loan to value is under 15 percent loan to value. And so um, that impacts us less because most of our returns made up of rate and fee, like I said before. So we haven't historically seen that be a huge impact to us. Um, I, I do expect we'll continue to see it. You know, companies struggle raising that capital, and that might lead to some some defaults. But uh, you know, being senior secured against companies that have you know hundred plus million dollar valuations and real IP, we're typically in a pretty good spot to weather that type of storm. Kyle, what are some of the sectors that you guys favor uh, investing in? So we focus a lot on manufacturing. Uh, there's a lot that goes underneath that. It could be food and beverage. It could be you know, frontier tech like an Axiom space where they're using our tools to build the first commercial space station. Uh, we focus on mission critical equipment, equipment the company cannot survive without. And so whether or not they turn into Google or not, you know, there's real value there, whoever does buy them or, 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 you know, there's real value in that equipment. So we focus on manufacturing, I actually really bullish on that space. I think you're seeing more and more focus on infrastructure in the U S and they need a lot of tools, a lot of equipment. So, uh, we see a lot happening there. Um, you know, we also uh, we continue to see a lot of enterprise SaaS. Although, you know, I think you're seeing a lot of revaluations happening there. Um, that's not going away, and that's a that's a pretty big part of our portfolio as well. So, you know, manufacturing, enterprise SaaS, and then, uh, you know, life science and healthcare. I think that that correction happened a long time ago, and you're starting to see some really interesting opportunities there as well. What's the, you know that uh, what's the biggest challenge to your growth? Because I just am reminded that. It's difficult to find workers. I know that in tech, uh, there are a lot of 
pink slips going out. So maybe that would help. Um, but a lot of people we talk to say they have to go to Canada to find, um, you know, workers with the skills that they need. Yeah. Um, I don't know that uh, our our portfolio companies, you know, think about our portfolio. The they're, maybe they're, they're not quite big enough, but I'm just wondering what are yeah. the challenges to growth that you see out there? Sure. Um, you know, uh, inflation obviously continues to be a difficult, especially for consumer type products. Um, you know, I think that if you see a, a recession, there's going to be a one to two year time period where it's just going to be a little bit slower. You're not going to be have these 50 to 100 percent growth rates. Maybe it's a little bit less than that. So I think, you know, capitalization and making sure you've got runway to weather a storm is absolutely on the forefront of all of our all of our companies' minds. And and it should be. Um, they've got real technology. It's very disruptive. Uh, and they're disrupting old archaic businesses, but it's not necessarily the best technology that wins the day. It's the best capitalized company that wins the day often. Hey, Kyle, you took uh, your company, Trinity Capital Public. What was the strategy behind that for you and your, your colleagues? So um, we decided many years ago, we wanted to be the best in the world at this. We wanted to be a solution that was everything for growth stage companies above and beyond that cheap receivable financing you can get from a bank. We wanted to be the alternative lender of choice and access to the capital markets was key. We're a BDC. We distribute out the majority or all of our earnings annually. So we can't grow unless we can raise capital. And, uh, you know, recently we just got approved by the SEC for our public company. This is really interesting. Our public company to manage an RIA where we can manage additional funds off balance sheet and it's owned by our public company. So it gives us the ability to grow on balance sheet when the public markets are open and it's accretive and it makes sense to investors. And then we can raise money privately all to the benefit of our shareholders as well. So, um, you know, it's going to take a lot of capital to continue to build yep. and grow and become that one-stop shop for growth stage companies. But I think we've got the platform uh, and it's the opportunities right for us to be able to do that. All right. Good stuff. Appreciate getting the lowdown. Kyle Brown, CIO and president of Trinity Capital. Again, that is a publicly traded company uh, on NASDAQ. Uh, the company rang the bell last Tuesday, actually. Uh, the ticker is T-R-I-N. We all know how much Matt and I love the big take stories, in-depth reporting, and some really cool topics in our uh, reporters and editors. They go deep and they bring you some really good stories and so good. And we got a podcast for the Bloomberg Big Take, and that's hosted by Wes Kosova. Wes, thanks so much for joining us here. Wes Kosova, what do you got for us here on your podcast coming up? So today's episode is really interesting. It's about how Americans are driving more. We're all getting back in our cars, driving instead of flying. And yet we're using less gasoline than ever before. So gasoline usage has not returned to pre-COVID levels. And so it's this indication that, you know, we've all talked forever about, oh, we're going to reduce our dependence on gasoline. And it's actually starting to happen now. Gasoline use is ticking downward, even though we're using, you know, our cars even more. Yeah, I mean, I, so I'm the wrong person to talk to about this because I've never had a car that gets more than like 13 miles a gallon. And but that includes the Chevy Silverado with the yeah, I get about like 13.6. Okay. It's a 6.2 liter V8. But I've been <laughs> test driving a Kia EV6, an you know, electric vehicle over the last week. And it's like eye opening. I never yep. even think about a gas station. I would save $500 a month if I had an EV. Um, is this why the figures are moving down? More people using EVs, more people uh, driving cars that get, you know, better mileage than me? 
Yeah, you nailed both of them. EV use is, um, you know, up. You see it now, like it used to be, oh, Tesla was the whole thing. And uh, now everybody's getting into it. So that's going up. Even though EVs are only 1% of car sales, it's going to start kind of picking up. The other big thing is uh, during the Obama administration, they started putting stricter, you know, uh, mileage standards. And they started in California and then everybody else followed. And so the cars on the fleet right now, just kind of cars on the road, are more efficient than ever before. And those two things largely are combining to just let us drive longer with less gasoline. By the way, is that everything? I mean, gasoline, uh, I, I assume that the lion's share of gasoline usage globally is personal transportation vehicles. It's cars, and of course, it's a lot of delivery. I mean, think about what happened during the pandemic. You know, you just had so much more delivery you have instead of taxi cabs. You have many, many more Ubers and Lyfts all over the place on, on the road. So when you even think about that, like all those miles piling up and gasoline use going down, it really is this indication of kind of like what the future holds. But I am seeing a lot of the, a lot more, and I just noticed over the past few weeks of the Amazon electronic vans delivering stuff yeah, so they're yeah, all a lot of that fleet is is switching to cleaner fuels too so all this stuff coming down the road and part of the podcast we talk about is well okay so fine but does that mean gasoline is going away and of course the answer is no and it's going to be a very slow bumpy kind of painful ride down uh because we still have all of these refineries and everything in business and trying to unwind that is going to be pretty messy stuff yeah what, what does the future look i'm looking at right now i gotta buy a dodge challenger hellcat before they stop making them this is the last year that's a very much gasoline you have uh, to you have vehicle. to buy it i want i want it desperately okay. but um i'm worried that at some point there won't be any gas stations you know or you know, it might not be legal for me to drive a car that imbibes gasoline like that. <laughs> Is that a, um, a legit, a valid concern, Wes? I think you're going to be okay for as long as you're going to drive that car. I mean, I really doubt they're going to say, okay, these cars are illegal. Look what happened when gasoline became unleaded. You know, you could still drive your leaded gasoline car, but like over a long period of time, it finally became impossible to find leaded gasoline. Probably a similar thing like that. You've got plenty of time to to uh, get your fun out of that car. <laughs> so, Wes, what are, what are the what's the energy complex, the energy industry? What are they saying about kind of the future of gasoline demand and maybe how they're going to adapt? Well, I mean, they're already preparing for it now. I mean, they're looking at a future thinking about, OK, so what sort of investment should we make? And one of the things we talk about in the podcast is how the Biden administration is saying, you know, hey, why don't you guys build refineries? We need more. Exactly. And they're saying, well, you know, looking down the road, is this going to be viable? It costs billions of dollars to build these things. And so they're instead investing in other things. You know, of course, there's um, there's diesel and there's jet fuel and there's a lot of plastics, you know, all derived from petroleum. So there could be shifts to those more profitable things as gasoline um, rides down. And so all of that is going to kind of be this this big kind of major changeover from gasoline to other petroleum kind of products. Hopefully not plastics. <laughs> That's nasty. Um, what do you think about EVs versus hydrogen? I guess it's not necessarily an either or question, but um, what I'm asking is, are there going to be more alternative power sources to rival gasoline? That's a really good question. I mean, all of it comes down to can you make money off of it? I mean, just now we're starting to see that, you know, battery powered cars can be profitable. That's why everyone's getting into it. I don't know that anybody in a serious way has invested in like hydrogen or sometimes you see these cars run on, you know, uh, you know, waste material and this other kind of stuff becoming like a really big thing. But I don't know, like, you know, only takes one person to do it and suddenly there's a market. 
in our, you mentioned California. I mean, you think of California, and I just think of traffic jams. I mean, you know, I mean, everybody drives. There's no little to no mass transportation. You know, I, does, I wonder if that's ever going to change. I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem like mass transportation gets the support or the, I guess, that no it does. No one cares it, in America. Nobody cares in America. So is that going to, is that the future, Wes? I don't know. I mean, they've always been talking about it, and we've been terrible. If you look at Europe, you can get anywhere on mass uh, transportation. We did an episode of the podcast recently about how cities like London um, are starting to charge a lot of money to drive a gasoline-powered car into the center of the city. Uh, and so they're not just trying to reduce the traffic, but trying to say, you should buy an EV because you can drive those in the city without having to pay. So they're trying to change people's behavior by making it painful to drive polluting cars. So what's the bottom line for oil, Wes? Um, you know, we're looking at $80 and change for a barrel of, West, barrel of West Texas Intermediate. And some people are saying the reopening of China and the lack of a deep recession in Europe could drive that price even higher. Um, I guess you're, you're looking at you're taking a much longer term view. Yeah, and that's actually a really interesting thing. We get into it on the show today um, is about how you think, oh, well, so, you know, demand for gasoline is going to go lower. So maybe we're going to get some relief from these high gas prices. And the answer is, yeah, that's going to happen. Um, but it's going to happen in the long term, because in the medium term, especially when these oil companies are trying to adjust to a new future and trying to ride down as profitably as possible, there could be price shocks, there could be temporary shortages, um, all leading to, you know, higher prices. And you know, the three Bloomberg journalists on the show, Lynn Dewan, Jun Zizhu, and Millie Munchie are just you know, amazing. They, they write about this, think about this all the time, and they are <laughs> really, really interested in talking about it. All right, that's great stuff. Wes Kosova, he's the host of Bloomberg The Big Take podcast in, uh, this week to talk about gasoline. Gasoline starts its long, slow ride down. That's the podcast. I don't know, Matt. I, I kind of always envision you in an internal combustion engine vehicle i well especially you know now with a beard i just can't see you going ev with the beard <laughs> i mean I, I i i'm open to both okay so variety is the spice of life Paul. there you go and again that ford f-150 uh ev that i drove that was awesome the lightning yeah the lightning that kind of turned my eyes a little bit thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.